Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. Well, why don't you grab a hand? Some of you haven't had dates for months. Grab a hand right here. And if, you, uh, if you'd like to date the person next to you, just squeeze that hand. Be bold. Go where no man's ever gone before. And uh, if it's a yes, just squeeze back. That would be great. You can set up the date after the session tonight. Lord, we bless. We bless this Holy Spirit anointing. And they were all in one place. And uh, they and I just like I claim Acts one over you. You had one mind and one, just keep holding hands. It's the most exciting thing that's happened to some of you in months right here. I'll pray really slow. Thank you, Lord, for all of these people. We pray for love, love, love. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Whoa, feel that? Oh, it's good. See, all the online audience, see, this is why you need to come to church. Okay, you can let go of hands right now. Lord, we pray for you. this word that you would bless this word today and let these people know I'm right. Amen. Well, um, it's been a while since I preached on Sunday night. This is really fun tonight. And, all these people having an experience in the baptismal tank, so cool, and you know, the old man's dead and the new man's rising out of the tub, and just a great to be baptized on Easter, something special about that, and I don't know, being baptized anytime is pretty special, really, but um, I, I think I'll talk about um, the resurrection. <laughs> I was praying about it, and I thought, it's Easter, maybe we should talk about the resurrection, so, did Bill talk about the resurrection this morning? I, I, he did? Oh, that's good. That's good. Because on Friday night, we left Jesus in the tomb. So I was like hoping Jesus would come out of the tomb on Sunday. It's very good. Well, I want to turn to John 20 and have all these things to do tonight. I think they're going to be fun. We'll see. Maybe not, but I think they will be. Um, let's, uh, this is probably the most read story on Easter, but... I feel to just uh, read, read it again. John 20, verse 1, obviously speaking of the resurrection. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and got to the tomb first. That's the only place in the entire Bible that tells you that John beat Peter to the tomb. John wrote it. I just think it's so funny to me. In my, in my, in my paper Bible, I have, and who really cares? <laughs> I guess John does, though. So Peter and John ran to the tomb. John got there first, and stooping, um, sorry, da, 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 da. okay, and stooping, snoop, stooping, it's not snooping, snooping in, stooping in, he saw, stooping in, he's, 
very old translation. He saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. And so Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb and saw the linen wrapping lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrapping, but rolled by itself in another place. And the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For they as yet, they did not understand the scripture that, they must, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So she wept and stood, she stooped and looked in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to your brethren and say to them, I ascended to my father and your father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene announcing to the disciples, Mary Magdalene announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he said these things to her. When it was evening and the day, when it was evening, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands inside. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What a powerful portion of scripture. And um, I, I, I want to I wanna point out a few things out of the scripture. Um, it's interesting to me that when Jesus rose from the dead, it says that there was two linen wrappings, one that covered his face and one that covered the body. And the one that covered the body was still in place where the body once laid. Did you notice that? But the one that covered the face was folded up and put in another place. And I, did you notice that Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means the skull? Why was Jesus crucified at a place called the skull? Because how many know he's the head of the church? He's the head of the church. And Jesus was crucified with a crown of thorns. Why a crown of thorns? Remember what the curse over Adam was? The curse over the serpent was you'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dirt and I'll put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. The curse over the woman is that God will increase your pain in childbirth, but your, but your desire will still be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. By the way, it was a curse that your husband will rule over you. And it wasn't that all men would rule all women. It's that you, when you, when you marry, your husband will be your ruler. How many know that was the curse? 
Good point. Thank you, Chris, for that. Good point. Ladies, you should have been like shouting. I felt like you're like something. There's a bondage we need to break here. But the curse over Adam is that you're going to till the ground, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. In other words, you're going to do the right thing, but the wrong thing's going to happen. How many know the, the, a curse means you do the right thing, the wrong thing happens? How many know there's three levels of life? There's curses, what I just explained to you. You can do the right thing, you're going to till the ground, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. And then there's sowing and reaping. That means you get what you deserve. But how many know the highest level of life is inheritance? That means you get what someone else worked for. When Jesus died on the cross, he had a crown of thorns on his head. Why? Because he was breaking the curse off the earth. And how many know the curse wasn't just on humans? It was also on creation. How many know that Jesus didn't just die for humans? He died for all creation. That's why Jesus said, preach this gospel to all creation. And that's why creation itself is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the, the, the head was revealed. Remember, he took the cloth and he, and he set it another side, but the place where the body once was, the cloth was still in place. Why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the head was revealed, but the body had yet to be revealed. In Romans 8, 28, in fact, let me just read this to you. In Romans 8, 28, you've probably read this many times before, as I have, but it says this, for all being, who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, for we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, if we are children, then we are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ Jesus. Indeed, if we've suffered with him, so we also may be glorified with him. For I am considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For all creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would also be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation is groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And I just want to point out that when Jesus died on the cross, the head was revealed. But how many know that creation's been waiting for the body to be revealed? And um, all of creation is waiting for the body to be revealed. And I want to point out that when Jesus rose from the dead, the curse over creation was to be broken. The curse over creation. Why did Jesus wear a crown of thorns? Because remember, again, Adam, you're going to till the ground, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. How many know Jesus is destroying that way of thinking? I'm going to do the right thing, but the wrong thing's going to happen. How many understand that now the lowest level of life is not curses, it's sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. How many know that sowing and reaping is a blessing? Because before Jesus died on the cross, you could do the right thing, but the wrong thing still happened because we were under a curse. But that curse was broken. When Jesus rose from the dead, he broke the curse so that you can actually get what you receive. As a matter of fact, you can get what others (laughs) what others work for. You can actually work for, you can actually expect a legacy in your life. And so, and then um, I love this part too, that Jesus, 
Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, go tell my disciples that I'm alive. I, I don't know why people don't think women should be in the ministry. <laughs> I know this is, this is getting to be a sermon, right? A subject, a sermon. But I, I just, I feel to say that Jesus came to set the oppressed free in the first century. The most oppressed people group were not black people, weren't Asian people, weren't, you can name your favorite ethnic group. It was actually women. Women were most, the most oppressed people group in the day of Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus tells 12 disciples, on the third day, I'm gonna rise. Okay, guys, listen, I'm gonna die, but on the third day, I'm gonna rise. He tells them that for three years to the place where Peter goes, never shall you die. And Jesus said, Jesus had just told him a few minutes before, like flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you when he said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And five minutes later, Peter's like, never shall you die. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> He had a bipolar kind of relationship. But for three years, Jesus tells disciples, listen, guys, here it is. I'm going to die, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise. Okay, guys, follow me. Okay, get this. You know when you take a seed, you put it in the ground, and it dies, and then it comes to life? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm a seed. I'm going to put it in the ground, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise. Okay, you guys got that? Okay, on the third day, I'm gonna rise. See, all of creation, how many know God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. So that unbelievers are actually without excuse. That's Romans 1. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, clearly seen in what God made. So that unbelievers are without excuse. In other words, you don't have to know the Bible. You can look at creation and know there's a God. And also, you can know a lot about God. How does every time you plant a dead seed and it grows a live tree, God goes, resurrection. Every time you, you know, they took seeds that were in King Tut's tomb. Do you remember this? This is like 30 years ago. And they were in that tomb for, I don't know, some historian would know, but like hundreds of years, thousands of years. And they took those seeds after they'd been in King Tut's tomb, dead, right? Dead, 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 <laughs> dead. And they planted them. And those seeds grew. Are you with me? And every time you take a dead seed that you can't find any life in and you put it in the ground and it grows anything, God goes, resurrection. God goes, I, I am telling the resurrection story. I put it right in creation. Take a dead seed, put it in the ground, and it speaks of, I was dead and now I'm alive. Like actually creation is telling the story of resurrection. God said, make it as dead as you can. Carry it around for a thousand years. Put it in the ground. It will grow. You know why? Because of resurrection power. <laughs> You're getting, uh, getting this. And Jesus told the disciples, okay, uh, now, see, the, see, they put it in the ground, it died, come to life. Yeah, okay, now, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, and when they finally got up, Peter's like, never going to die. And Jesus like, you missed the point of the message, Pete. <laughs> like you have your sights set on man and not on God. So three and a half years, Jesus says, now remember, dead on the first day, one, a two, a three. On the third day, I'm going to rise. How many disciples were waiting for Jesus on the third day? Uh, zero. <laughs> zero. Not one disciple was waiting for Jesus on resurrection day. 
except for Mary. Well, those women, they're just not spiritual. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to put a plug in there. The story's just too good to not do that. Well, women shouldn't teach the Bible. If it wasn't for women, Peter would still be waiting for Jesus to rise. Now, Mary goes and tells 11 disciples, Judas by now has hung himself. How many disciples even go to check it out? Two. <laughs> 11 disciples. On the third day, I'm going to rise. You get it? One, uh, two, uh, three. <laughs> Mary comes. Jesus is alive. It's the third day. Nah. I mean, these are the guys who started the early church. So listen, you think you've had a bad day? You think you got a bad start. Like you think, well, you know, I don't know how spiritual I am. 11 guys with Jesus, nine of them said, nah. And Mary comes back. She's like, I've seen the Lord. Peter and John go they're like, I, we've went to the tomb. His body's gone. Thomas like, I doubt it. Like this, these are the world changers. These are God's history makers, his world changers. Like, what's your excuse? I don't know if I believe. They didn't either. And then Jesus walks through the wall and says, uh, peace be with you. How many know after Jesus rose from the dead, he never used a door because he is the door. You don't know how you're going to get out of this situation. It looks like there's no door. Peace be with you. You're in a situation where you feel trapped. Jesus shows up. He's a door. There's no way out. I'm a door. I'm in a prison. I'm a door. I'm in a situation that has no answer. I'm a door. You might feel like you're in prison, but when you invite Jesus, there's a new door. Did we get a permit for that? Did we get a building permit for that? There's a new door. Are you with me? And Jesus shows up. He's the door. So Thomas is like, I won't believe it unless I see Unless I put my hand in his scars, unless I put my hand in his side, and Jesus saw, hey, Tom. He touched me. Some of you have scars. Isn't it interesting that Jesus for eternity has scars? Some of you think your scars reveal your past, but I propose that your scars are a testimony of his healing in your life. I'll feel scarred. You will be for eternity. That's God's testimony in your life. Jesus carried him into, all the way into heaven. Now, he will have those scars forever. Those scars are not PTSD. Those scars are I destroyed the works of the devil. They had me dead, and now I'm alive. That's a really good word, actually. 
So I'll fill the back up and just say, there's a lot of us that get disappointed in ourselves. We're like, you know, I just went through a whole season. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm like doubting Thomas. And you just feel like you're disqualified because you're just like, deal with doubt. You're in a situation, you're like, I don't know, if I had the faith of Bill Johnson, I probably wouldn't have a problem. And you know, gosh, if I had the faith of the disciples, if you had the faith of the disciples, you probably wouldn't even show up at the tomb. (laughs) And Jesus said this, blessed are those, Thomas, who don't see, yet believe. That would be everybody in this room. That would be everybody watching on our campus online, on our online campus. I just want to say, get over yourself. Stop being so hard on yourself. Jesus discipled personally 11 guys, and his main message is, on the third day, I'm going to rise. Now, Matthew, you, you know, you're a tax collector. You can do the math, right? On the third day, I'm going to rise. And nobody showed up. Not a single man showed up. Only a disqualified woman who shouldn't be preaching the gospel. According to John MacArthur. I don't know. He said that publicly, so I thought I'd say that publicly. You know. Thank God for John. He's an awesome man. Just disempowered half the army of God. I have no war with him. I, I, I love him dearly. I'm just making a statement. When Jesus rose from the dead, he eternally disarmed the destructive weapons of sin, death, hell, and the grave. For sin could not tempt him. Death could not defeat him. Hell could not keep him. And the grave could not hold him. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You guys okay? I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that about John. I really do think he's an amazing man of God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Everybody say, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I love this. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't the first one to ever be resurrected. You remember that there was Lazarus, for example. There were five people, I think five people in the Old Testament that rose from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first people, person to rise from the dead, but he was the first born from the dead. He was the first person ever born from the dead. 
How many of you know, when you received Jesus Christ, you became born again? But the firstborn was Jesus. He remains not just your Lord, but your elder brother. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was the firstborn. He became the seed. Are you with me? He became the seed. See, Lazarus rose from the dead, but he wasn't reborn. He wasn't the firstborn. How many know that the firstborn has preeminence over the family? The firstborn carries the inheritance for the family. Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. Jesus was the firstborn. Someone said, Is Jesus, was Jesus born again? I don't know, let's not go that far, but let's just say what the scripture says. The scripture says he was the firstborn of all creation. That's really powerful. Colossians 2, 15 says this, when he had disarmed the rulers, speaking the resurrection, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. How many of you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil? He defeated him. Like, do you know that most, many people in this room and many people on our online campus are running from a disarmed and defeated devil? The devil's after me. You have power over him. He has no power over you. He's been disarmed and defeated. He got no arms and no feet. I mean, just picture that for a minute. You got a devil with no arm and no feet. He's chasing me. He can't even chase you. He might be a rolling stone, but he can't run very fast. <laughs> just think about that for a minute. I'm just pointing out that he has no authority. You, Jesus, in Matthew 28, when he rose from the dead, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because I have all authority, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all I taught you. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth, into the world. You're running from a defeated and disarmed devil. And I'm telling you that in your life, the only way he gets authority is if you deputize him. Let me say that again. The only way he gets authority in your life is if you deputize him. Because he has no authority. But our fear is faith in the wrong kingdom. You know, people say this all the time. You see it in the store, I do it to each other, we do it to each other. We say, bless you, man. Bless you, bro. Hey, man, seeing a story. Hey, God bless you. And we're like, yeah, God bless you too. And it's kind of like a greeting that's like, hi. Like, I think we mean like, hi. Hi. But we say, bless you. Can you imagine if a witch or a warlock came in here and said, I curse you? There would be 10 times more anxiety over someone who, it was, who was demonic saying, I curse you, then a brother who says, I bless you. And yet there's a thousand times more power in his blessing than in their curse. I remember, and this has been many years ago, we used to have a lot of demonic activity in our services. Yeah, staff. 
<laughs> this is kind of an old, uh, this is a funny story. Like 10 years ago, one of, one of our team, uh, one of our leaders was said to, uh, in a team meeting, you know, I don't know if, why we need Sozo ministry anymore. Like we don't have any demonic manifestations anymore. It's kind of a waste of money. I'm like, we don't have any demonic manifestations because we have Sozo. Yeah. Do you know our Sozo teams average 970 appointments a month? You want to know why people aren't flopping and dropping in here? Because they're flopping and dropping over there. It's a sign that things get healthy because they over there are casting out demons so you can pay attention to anointed speaker. Don't tear down the fence till you know why they put it up, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's okay, here we go. This sounds like a political statement. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, let's just offend everyone tonight. Maybe we should call out some politicians tonight. Just go ahead and lose my job. Lose my anointing, at least. I can't remember what I was talking about now. Oh, I remember. We were, we were, we, we, we often have people on lines. In fact, we're, we'll, we do that here still. You know, we put, after the you know, ministry time, we just have people lined up on lines and we just have ministry teams that go out and minister to them. And we should do that like Bill used to say, look at that, there's a feather. That doesn't happen, that's not really there. Why do you guys talk about feathers? I don't know, they fly around me when I'm talking. Very distracting. Anyway, Bill used to always say, the real anointing comes after midnight. Like, oh, great. I'll go home, I'll come back at midnight. And I remember we had people lined up, and we, man, we have so many stories of crazy stuff that used to happen. But... Uh, <laughs> But I remember this, uh, this guy was standing right there. It's, it's not significant that you're standing there. <laughs> I'm just being funny. It's not. It's just happened. And uh, somebody was trying to minister to him. And he said, Satan is stronger than God. So um, she's the minister, the, one of the, the older gals who was praying for him came over and said, hey, I think there's a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? She's like, that man said that Satan's stronger than God. I said, well, he isn't. She's like, well, Pastor Chris, come and pray for him. I'm like, nah, you, you take care of it. She's like, no, I think you should come and take care of it. So I'm like, all right. So we went over there, and he's like seething. He's on the line, he's seething. And I said, uh, I heard you got a problem. He goes, I got no problems. Satan's stronger than God. I said, nah. <laughs> now, I know right now that if I get afraid, I just gave him my authority. So I started laughing. I noticed, like, get nervous, laugh. The joy of the Lord is really my strength right now. So I started to pray for them, and he got really mad, and he decided to hit me. 
And he's like, he goes, and this thing was talking out of his stomach, which was kind of interesting too. And all of that is a show to make you afraid. It's all to make you afraid. Like, why is all that happening? Why are all those manifestations happening? Not because they're demonized, but because the demon in him is trying to scare you. And I, and, I, and, I, and I just started laughing at him. And so he swung at me and he, with his right hand, and I just stood there like this. And inside I'm like, please don't let him hit me. <laughs> but I'm just laughing at him. And he goes, oh, and his, you could, I could feel the wind from his fist. And he got like a quarter inch from my face and he hit something, but it wasn't my face. And then he goes, <laughs> and then he swung again with his left hand and Ooh, he hit something else. And, it was really fun my, then. <laughs> and so I said, well, now it's my turn. And I put my hand on his head and I said, let the fire of God fall on this guy. And he starts, <laughs> and he starts jackhammering <laughs> and he starts screaming, Satan, help me. Oh, I forgot this part. When I first put his, my hand on his head, I said, in the name of Jesus, the fire of God, come on the sky. And he goes, we've been here for generations. <laughs> I said, I've been here for generations too. It feels like, <laughs> feel like I've been here forever. <laughs> then he started screaming, Satan, help me. He, goes, he can't help you. Fire of God, down he goes on the floor. Yes. That was fun. <laughs> I love that story because it demonstrates the power of peace. Like, peace is a weapon. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. How many know peace is a weapon? When you determine that you are not going to be afraid of your enemy. Like Psalms 2, that the nations plot against the Lord, but he laughs. He thinks it's funny. The Lord is like, hey, Peter, look at this. Unbelievable, but they think they. <laughs> There's humor in heaven, but God's sense of humor is a little different than ours. He really thinks it's funny when finite men think that they can beat God. Do you know that? Then what are you worried about? Well, I don't see any way out. He's a door. He's a resurrection and life. That's a good word. Okay, look at Romans chapter 6. Are you guys bored? Okay. One of my core values for preaching is thou shall not bore. My other core value is try to be accurate. <laughs> I mean, I am trying to be. Romans uh, 6 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? Um, the end of chapter 5 said this where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So Paul teaches for five chapters. He's teaching that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And then he goes on to say that no matter how deep you fall, his point for five chapters is, listen, don't matter how deep you fall, grace can rescue you. 
No matter how bad of life you've had, grace can deliver you. No matter how evil you've been, the Lord can change your heart. No matter how much you've been abused, God can heal your heart. No no matter how sick your body is, God can restore your body. And and he goes on in, in Romans to say that grace is not like the law because the law had no power to change you. The law told you all the things you did wrong, but it had no power to change you. But then grace came. And so the the climax of Paul's five-chapter argument is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's like a motto statement of five chapters. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Oh, God can never save whatever, whatever you, you think the worst city is. San Francisco is so big. Hey, you know what? If where sin abounds, if grace abounds all the more, you're more likely to have a revival in a place where sin abounds because God goes, that's where grace abounds all the more. Just tell God you can't do it. God just like, God, I just don't think you can do it. Like, just use reverse psychology on him. I bet you can't heal me. (laughs) I'm just joking. That was really, that was inaccurate. I I know that. (laughs) My point is, my point is, that when God, you, you are competitive because God's competitive. It's part of the nature of God. You know, remember God said to David, David, they said I can, I can beat him in the valley, but I can't beat him in the mountains. The next time we, we fight him, we're going to fight him in the mountains. God's like, don't tell me I can't do it. Don't tell me I can't do it. I can do anything. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So Paul, remember there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers. This was all one letter to the Romans. And by the time he gets to chapter five, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. he, He realizes that he's just made a case that maybe you should sin so you can get more grace. Because how many know grace isn't just undeserved favor. Grace is the operational power of God. Grace gives you the ability to do what you couldn't do one second before you heard. Are you with me? What I'm saying is, when we say we got saved by grace, it's not just undeserved favor. How I many know oh, mercy means you didn't get what you deserve? Like if you were going 50 miles over the speed limit and an officer pulled you over and did not give you a ticket, how I many know oh, that's mercy? You, you didn't get what you deserve. And by the way, in order for you to get mercy, you have to actually admit that you had a transgression. <laughs> if you make your identity if your, if your transgression becomes your identity, so you no longer say, that's not what I do, it's who I am, how many know you can't receive mercy because you don't admit you're wrong? Are you with me? Just think through that for a minute. You can think that through by yourself, right? But grace, if a police officer pulls you over for going 50 miles over the speed limit, and he, instead of giving you a ticket, he gives you $1,000 for speeding, that's grace. Grace means you got what you didn't deserve. Mercy, said, mercy means you didn't get what you deserve. But grace, when, it, when the Bible says you were saved by grace and not by works, grace gives you the ability to do what you couldn't do one second before you receive grace. So how many understand that when God saved us, he didn't just go, okay, you did a bunch of bad stuff, I forgive you. How I many know oh, that just left you, it, it erased the board, but it did not give you any power to not do it again. 
But how many know Jesus didn't do that? When he didn't just erase your sins, he actually gave you power to not sin. How many know Jesus saved you from sin so that you don't have to sin because you have power over sin now? Sin used to have power over you. Listen, if someone had a prophetic word for you, and it really was a prophetic word, and they said, I see you as a nurse, and you, were, you weren't a nurse, and you go, what? I'm not a nurse. How I many you know, a word of knowledge is information that's currently true. So if I called you out and said, I see you as a nurse, and you're a nurse, how I many you know that's a good word, but it's not a prophecy? Because prophecy is always about the future. Follow me for a minute. When somebody calls you out and says, I see you as a nurse, and if it is the word of the Lord, not a mistake, how many know they just gave you a, they just gave you the ability to be what you weren't? That's called grace. If someone calls you out and says, I see you as a teacher, and you're like, teacher, I'm dyslexic, I'm afraid of people, I don't understand whatever the Bible, but when you received the word, if you receive a prophet, name the prophet, you see the prophet's word. What is the prophet's word? The ability to do what you couldn't do one second before you heard it. What I'm getting at is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just forgive you. He gave you power to change. Are you with me? So when Paul realizes where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and it sounds like he just made a case for you should sin so you can get more power. He realizes that he has to fix that before he goes on. So he makes this statement. Shall we, what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so grace may increase? How many know he just made a theological problem for himself? And then he says this, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was, past tense, crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we are no longer slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Greatest lie in Christendom. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Not true. Not true. You were a sinner. I was a sinner. When I received Jesus Christ, I became a saint. People are like, that's semantics. No, it's not. I am no longer a sinner because sin is not my identity. I am not an alcoholic because an alcoholic is an identity. I don't care how much you drink, you are not an alcoholic. You cannot identify as a sinner because you, if you receive Jesus Christ, you're, <laughs> the power of grace freed you from the power of sin. Because how many know you died? <laughs> Here we go. I'd like to point out that Jesus didn't just die for you. He died as you. Okay, first he died for me. What's that mean? It means that when he died on the cross, he paid for my sin. Are you with me? Okay, think about it like this. In the Old Testament, there was no, there was no, there was no 
there was no uh, payment for sin. Are you with me? So think about, uh, I, I, let's, say, let's say that Tom's the judge. He's the judge. And let's say that Ben killed my brother. And we go before the judge and the judge says, uh, and I say to the judge, your honor, Bill killed my Ben killed my brother. Bill, Bill killed somebody. We'll get to Bill later. <laughs> We're not letting Bill off tonight. He ain't here. Ben killed my brother. And Tom turns to Ben and goes, oh, your father and I used to play golf together. Go free. How many of that's mercy? How many know that's mercy? But it's not justice. How many know that God is a righteous ju judge? He sits on the mercy seat, but the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. How many know that God, can I say, has a problem? Because God wants to release mercy, but he has to create justice. Are you with me? So Ben's mother steps up and said, your honor, I will die for my son. And the judge looks through the journals of fugitives. And he says, you can't die for Ben because you owe for your own sin. How many know the soul that sins shall die? You can't die for him because you owe for your own. All of a sudden, the son of the judge enters the courtroom and he says, your honor, I will die for Ben. The judge looks into the journals of fugitives and says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, wait a second, you don't owe, you never sin. So the, the judge says, you can die for him because you don't owe for your own. So how many you know when Jesus dies for Ben, he creates justice. So now God can release mercy without being crooked. What's the difference between the new and old covenant? Jesus died on the cross, he created justice. So God can release mercy. See, mercy costs God his son. Because God is a righteous God. And he said, I must have justice. I mean, you know, we see it all, all the time on Fox News and different news where this person molests a kid, rapes a woman, does some hideous crime, and the judge gives him mercy and says, oh, you don't have to do any time. And we're all like, whoa, 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 wait a second. This guy is a serial rapist and you let him go. And we all go, that's not just, that's wrong. That's a crooked judge. Because there's something in us that's like God. We know that sin requires judgment to create justice. So when we see somebody who did a hideous crime go free, we go, that's a crooked judge. And God goes, I'm not a crooked judge. God goes, I must have justice so that I can release mercy. And Jesus goes, I'll create that for Tom. I'll create that for Ben. I'll create that, I'll create that for Leslie. I'll create that. God, I owe nothing for myself, so I will give it for them. And God goes, great, now I have justice. Now I can release mercy. How many know mercy costs God a lot? So first of all, Jesus died 
for you. But Romans 6 says that Jesus didn't just die for me, that he died as me. Why does that matter? The Bible says, Romans, we just read it. Romans says that when Jesus was on the cross, that I was in Christ being crucified with him. Why is that important? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, I rose with him. So Jesus didn't just die for me, he died as me. So that his resurrection is my resurrection. You're like, someday when I, when I die, I'm gonna go to heaven. Yes, but you're already seated in heavenly places because he already went to heaven and you were in Christ. You, he was a Trojan horse that you were in. And when he, when he died on the cross and rose again and then sat at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians chapter one says that you rose with him because he didn't just die for you, he died as you. Do you believe in a rapture? You've already had one. The question is, do you believe in it? Do you believe in your own rapture? You didn't get what I just said. I'm pointing out that you're already seated in heavenly places with Christ because when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. And when he rose, you rose with him. This baptismal tank we saw tonight, this is not a ritual. We don't do this to remember what Jesus did. See, we take communion in remembrance of what Christ did for us. Why do we take communion? To remember what side of the cross we live on. I take communion to remember all the benefits of this side of the cross, because I don't live on that side of the cross anymore. I'm sick, I shouldn't be. The benefits of the resurrection is that he died to set me free from my afflictions. Isaiah 53, right? Are you with me? So I'm saying, I take communion, do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Every time I take the bread and the blood, I remember that I am living the power of the resurrected life. Because I live not on this side of the cross, I live on this side of the cross. For thousands of years, they lived on that side of the cross, but I live on the side of the cross where he said, your honor, I'll take their punishment. And God said, great. I'll release mercy then. And then I'll give them grace to live in a life they don't deserve. Are you with me? But baptism is not a symbolic act. Baptism is a prophetic act. What's the difference? Do you remember when Naaman the leper went to Elijah's house? Because the slave girl said, there is a prophet in Israel and he can make you well from leprosy. So the enemy commander comes to Elisha's house. This is a big risk for him. Elisha doesn't come out. He sends Gehazi. And he said, Gehazi, just go tell him to dunk seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be clean. Do you remember this story? And the commander gets so angry. He rides off because he's used to everyone honoring him. And Elisha's just, he's just another man. Tell him to go dunk seven times in the Jordan River. And he rides off and he goes, we have better water in our country than the Jordan. But his number two man, how many know the number two man? Always smarter than the number one man. <laughs> I don't know if I have a job. <laughs> At least I'll go out in flames. The number two guy goes, why don't you just dip? 
I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You get wet. He literally talks his boss into going and dipping seven times. Goes down, he dips seven times, and you know what happens. The seventh time, he comes out of the water, and he is clean. Physical obedience brings spiritual release. There are two parts to the baptismal prophetic act. The first one is, we put you under the water. That's not the most powerful part. That's not even the part that we should emphasize. Because when we put you under the water, it means that you died, not, not you symbolized you died, you died with Christ. We put you under the water. And your old man dies in the tank. But the most powerful part is the second part of the prophetic act. And that's when we lift you out of the water. Because the second part of it is what happens after you died. When a seed goes to the ground, it dies. But what happens to it after it's dead? It comes out alive. And when we lift you out of the water, it's not a symbol. It's a prophetic act. And prophetic acts release grace into your life so that you have what you didn't have before you went in the tank. So you entered the tank with the cross. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, must take up his cross and follow him. But how many know Jesus was going somewhere? And Romans 6 says that he died once and for all. He didn't die 50 times. He's not being re-crucified. Well, I need Jesus to be re-crucified. No, he died once and for all. When you, get, you come into the baptismal tank with a cross, but how many know you leave with a crown? Because as he is, 1 John 4, as he is, not as he was, as he is, so are we in this world. How many know Jesus went into the tank, metaphorically a lamb, but he left a lion? I'm pointing out that he is king of kings. You're like, I'm nobody. No, you're the king he's king over. <laughs> you're not the king, you're just a king. Well, how many kings can be in this kingdom? You're an heir. Jesus is not president of presidents, he's king of kings. If he's president of presidents, you'd have to be voted in to be an heir. But because he's king of kings, you're in his royal blood lineage. That's why you take the blood in communion because you are part of a heritage and a lineage because you have received the crown through birth. Romans 8, we read it. You are joint heirs. Heir, H-E-I-R. You're an heir of Christ. Why? Because your daddy is king. You're part of a royal lineage. Well, I don't, think too, I don't want to think too highly of myself. No, but you ought to think to have sound judgment. I love it. I just watched Braveheart again. I watched Braveheart last week. I watched Gladiator the week before that. I'm like, I'm going back to warfare. I'm going to go back to find courageous people and watch it. It's Hollywooded up, but I like it because the real story is better than that in Jesus. And... William Wallace is talking to Robert the Bruce, who's the king. And Robert the Bruce says to him, you need the nobles. And William Wallace says to him, why do we need the nobles? What does it mean to be a noble? 
That's my Scottish accent, the best I could do. My favorite line in the whole movie, why do we need the nobles? What does it mean to be noble? Men don't follow titles, they follow courage. It's pretty close, right? That's pretty close. Let me, let me just tell you, I went to Scotland. This is a few years ago. I went to Scotland and taught. Well, first of all, I got there and uh, it, was, it was pouring rain. I'd never been there before. And they said, oh, you missed summer by one hour. <laughs> and they gave me these rubber boots. I don't know what they're called, wallies? Well, yeah, something. Yeah, I won't say, because if you say it wrong, it's kind of a dirty word in their, their language. So anyway, I preached there. It was all great. We preached in a tent. It was raining the whole time. But then we had Q&A. We had a Q&A with the, with the Scottish leaders. And after two people asked questions, I finally like, hey, I need a translator. <laughs> what language do these people speak? Thank God we won the war. Think about how the English and the Scottish have destroyed the English language. <laughs> I'll drink some tea to that. <laughs> oh boy, I don't think I'm gonna be preaching Sunday night very often. I'll feel totally unleashed. But here's my point. What does it mean to be noble? What does it mean? What does it mean to be noble? No, I mean sincerely. What does it mean to be noble? Because if every temptation, if you identify your temptations as your identity, then what does it mean to be noble? If my sexual attraction is not a temptation, but my identity, like I can't help it because this is the way I was born, then where does it mean to be noble? At what point do I resist anything? Because everything I'm attracted to, according to that philosophy and religion, I'm actually made for. Then the question is, what does it mean to be noble? And I'm pointing out that when you rose with Jesus, you became a part of a noble family. And it means that sin, let me tell you what it means is no longer your master. It's not your master. Well, I feel, I feel addicted to porn. Now, I, I know what it's like to have an addiction. I get it. I get it. But let me tell you what isn't true. That thing does not have power over you. Now, let me say this. I don't say that with no compassion because I said I know what it feels like to be addicted. But the truth is what sets you free. It's not making you feel good that sets you free. It's telling you the truth that sets you free. I'm addicted to porn. I know that feels true. And as a boy, I was addicted to porn. So I understand what that means to be addicted. I have complete compassion for anybody who has any addiction to anything. 
But listen, I'm not going to get free by believing that I have no power over it. Because Jesus gave me power over sin, any sin. And it doesn't, it isn't going to make it go away if I say it isn't sin. Well, it's not sin. I don't believe it's sin. I believe this is the way I was born. It's still killing you. Because you don't break the law. It only breaks you. Well, I don't believe that in gravity. Okay. Okay. But when God says no, it's not to stop you. He's the one that gave you sex drive. He's the one that created orgasms. He's the one that said taste and see. He's the one that gave you taste buds. He's the one that made you, he's the one that created you for pleasure. So when God goes, hey, I created you for pleasure, but don't have it that way. How many know God knows what he's doing? He's the one who designed you for it. Okay, here we go. Good point, Chris. I want to finish, just read this. I want to read this to you. I wrote this um, in the Supernatural Ways of Royalty book. It was the introduction. The tale of a king. Pauperhood is relegated to the children of a lesser God. It's a condition of slaves who, yet to know, who have yet to discover their freedom on the other side of the river of baptism and yet find themselves captured by the dark prince of torture and torment. He is the one who assigns them to a life of poverty, pain, and depression through the diabolical play of illusion, hoping to conceal their identity forever. This evil prince feeds his captors the rations of religion to fill those souls who hunger for righteousness. These slaves, blindfolded by their sin, think that they are laboring for their own freedom and work to pave their way out of prison with the bricks built from the miry clay of self-righteousness. Yet unknowingly, brick by brick, they are erecting their own chamber of death. Worse yet, they give birth to this offspring of the same darkness, ultimately creating legacies of bondage with mindsets of hopelessness. But on a hill far away, a lamb-turned lion descended into the death camp through the porthole of Golgotha. Crashing through the gates of hell, he met the dark prince and the mother of all battles. The three spikes and a thorny crown, the captain of the host, conquered the devil, eternally disarming his destructive weapons of sin, death, hell, and the grave. For sin could not keep him. I'm sorry. For sin could not tempt him. Death could not defeat him. Hell could not keep him, and the grave could not hold him. With watching witnesses and waiting warriors, he ascended through the earth's surface. The planet quaked to release its captives, while heaven thundered to receive its treasure. This wasn't just rescued souls being redeemed, but the crowning of sons who were to be revealed. For the Holy One of Radiance bought rotten, ragged sinners and recreated them into righteous, reigning saints. We are not just soldiers of the cross, we are heirs to the throne. His divine nature permeates our souls, transforms our minds, and transplants our hearts, and transfigures our spirits. We were made to be vessels of glory and vehicles of light. Others say the story is better reflected in the beautiful daughter who was ascended to the throne through marriage, for she's betrothed to the Prince of Peace. The bridal chamber is being assembled, the feast is being prepared, and the bride is making herself ready. Whether we are called the children of God, the engaged bride, a royal priesthood, the apple of his eye, or a new creation, one thing's for certain. We have captured, we have captivated the heart of our lover, who is leading a majestic entourage, for he has mounted his white horse and is making his way to the planet. Meanwhile, back on earth, God's people are rising in this present darkness and beginning to shine. 
His royal army is spreading the king's glory all over the earth as we take dominion of this planet back from the defeated one. Equipped with the lie of the father, his sons are finding buried treasure in the hearts of men that were once covered by rocks of offense and thorns of treachery and relics of religion. Armed with the power of the Holy Spirit and commissioned to represent the king's son, we are healing the sick, raising the dead, and displacing devils. This is resulting in paupers becoming princes and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. I love, I was listening to T.D. Jakes last week and he made this statement. He said, Goliath wasn't sent to kill David. He was sent to reveal him. So David wasn't sent to kill, Goliath wasn't sent to kill David. He was sent to reveal him. With no Goliath, there likely would have been no King David. Your problems aren't sent to destroy you. They're sent to reveal that you are an heir of God. That's such a good word. I have a few words of knowledge. Um, is there somebody in here, or maybe you're on our online campus, named May? May? Is there somebody named May? She did? Oh, is she here? Somewhere? She drowned in the baptismal tank. <laughs> Somebody go raise her from the dead. I have a word for her. Um, is she in the room? Do you have someone? Oh, okay. I'm going to give her this word anyway. I saw the Lord like healing her neck, but God says, I'm strengthening the core of your identity. And I felt the Lord was like reforming her. Uh, he was reforming her. And uh, is someone recording this? I felt that the Lord was reforming her. And the, uh, the healing of the neck, I don't know if it's a physical healing of the neck, although I saw it like a vertebrae, but I feel like it's a healing of the backbone. Like God's giving May a backbone. He's giving her a backbone. He's saying, listen, May, you are strong. You are not weak. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty woman. I'm a mighty man. And I believe that the Lord is strengthening your core. He's filling you with identity. And he's going to use you as a reformer, a revivalist, and a, a preacher of righteousness. And I see uh, like an evangelistic mantle coming on you. In Jesus' name. Thank you uh, for that. Okay. And um, the uh, next one is, I ha uh, someone had a dream. I think it was last night. But that you were in a den of snakes. Would you stand up if you've had a dream especially if it was last night or this week, that you were, that you were a, in a den of snakes. Now, there probably is somebody online if it's not here in our online campus, but if that's you, would you stand up? I have a word for you. Wow, what are you waiting for? Okay, that's good. Two snakes, okay. Yes. Was this this week? Was that this week? Last night. Last night, yeah. How about you? What'd she say? In the dream? Oh, that's good. <laughs> and I think there's at least one person online too. 
But um, I, I feel like the Lord said that he has put the snakes around you so that you would learn how to do deliverance. I felt there's a deliverance mantle on you. And I felt that this actually, this is going to sound weird. You should check to see if this is theologically accurate. Maybe I'll stand. But I felt the Lord attracting the snakes to you like he attracted Satan to Jesus in the wilderness. That he weakened Jesus for 39 days. And you know that the devil came on the 40th day. And he, Jesus, the devil saw Jesus in his weakened state and thought that he could defeat him. And he thought that maybe Jesus would serve him because of his weakness, not eating or drinking for 40 days. He, if you will, he suckered him into the wilderness. But he didn't sucker the devil into the wilderness to defeat Jesus. He suckered him into the wilderness for Jesus to defeat him. And the Bible says, uh, the book of Luke says that Jesus went into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit, but he left in the power of the Spirit. And I believe that the, the Lord has like, hey, have you considered my servant? And what the Lord has done, I feel like you're in a weakened state because when you're weak, he's strong. And two things are happening. First of all, the Lord's gonna defeat the enemy on your behalf without your, without your involvement to show you that when you're weak, he's strong. The second thing is that you're gonna leave this season and the season's gonna end in May and you're going to leave this season in the power of the Spirit. And what's going to happen is snakes are going to show up in other people's life and you'll be like, I know how to defeat those. And you're going to lose your fear of snakes because those snakes crawled over you, they bit you, but you were inoculated from it because the blood of Christ does not, not, does not, is, is impervious to the poison of snakes. And you're going to be like, you can't scare me because I'm inoculated from you. And I believe that that, it's a metaphor, you get all this right. And, and, and I believe that you're going to lose your fear of snakes. I'm going to tell you that I was demonized for three and a half years. This is my story. This is actually my story. And it was in the, my own personal deliverance that I lost fear of demonic spirits, of people being demonized. Because when I got free, I realized if I could get free, anyone can get free. And so this, these dreams, these harassing dreams, the Lord is saying, come and see my daughters. But what's going to happen is, is that he's coming, but you're going to crush his head. You're going to crush his head. And the most important thing isn't your victory. The most important thing is you're going to lose you are going to lose fear of snakes. You're going to lose fear of demonized people. You're going to lose fear. Warfare is going to mean a totally different thing to you. Warfare is going to be the joy of the Lord is my strength. I, I get to laugh in the face of crazy people. So I just unleash you in Jesus' name. That's a good word. Uh, I'll have this. Uh, okay, I have... I'm going to change. Uh, um, I want kids. We had a whole bunch of kids that got baptized tonight. If you're in the room, would you stand up? While you guys were getting baptized, I just had this prophetic thing happen to me. There was a bunch of them. Is there more here tonight? They're probably in bed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and in fact, why don't all the children stand up? Like, just the children. Just have the children stand up. Children stand up. Like, 12 and under would be great. 
just stand up. Yes, yeah, stand yeah. How old are you? That's good enough. I mean, who needs math? This is new math. This is new math. Yeah, you can stand up. If you consider yourself a child, stand up. And online, stand, no, 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 no. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I saw, I, I, I wrote this down in the middle of worship. A generation that has endured a 21st century genocide. You survived abortion. You overcame suicide. You pushed through indoctrination camps. You got free from sexual perversion. And you become a revolutionary. And now it's time for you to have a deliverance anointing. So if you're a kid, I want you to put your hands out. If you're watching your own online campus, would you just do the same? If it's, if it's appropriate, just stand up in your home or wherever you're at. And just put your hands out like this, right this. Or yeah, why don't you just put them over your head? That's even better. Okay, I'm gonna pray for you right now, but I'm gonna give you something. I'm gonna give you something and let it be according to your faith. I'm gonna give you something that you didn't come with tonight. Now, remember that whenever God gives you a gift, it comes with responsibility, right? Because whom God, you know, who's given much is, requires much, right? So who much is given, much is required. So I, I, I'm going to release an anointing on you for freeing people. And that means that people who need freedom are going to come to you. So don't complain about it. And God's going to free, he's going to free people through children. Listen, th this, th there is a demonic plot, and I'm loving Oh, he's a conspiratist. There is a demonic plot there's a demonic plot to take out Generation Z. There is. You can see it. In fact, actually about 20% of them aren't even here with us anymore because they've been aborted. But the Lord is raising up a deliverer, so to speak, a deliverance generation out of Generation Z. You remember when Moses was sent to be a deliverer that the Pharaoh killed all the firstborn children? When Jesus was coming, was born, they killed the firstborn male children. And the enemy is trying to wipe out a generation because he knows this is the generation of reformation. So extend your hands to these children. Lord, we release right now the power of God. We pray for the power of God to visit them in the night. We pray that it would walk them to school in the morning. We pray they would have angel visitations. We pray that they would see angels, that they would know their angel. As Daniel had an angel that talked to him, that told him his name, Lord, and I, I pray that the, you said that every child has an angel. And you said it would be better for you to never be born or a millstone to be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. It'd be better for that to happen to you than to offend one of these children. And so, Lord, I pray that they would be arrows. Arrows in the hands of warriors. That they would be first to trouble. And that, that, Lord, that they would trouble the enemy. That this generation, I, I, saw, I, I saw you stand up in, in school and say, no, that's not the way it is. <laughs> that's not the way it is. I want to tell you about this encounter I had. Keep, keep this up. Before I knew the Lord... I was in a philosophy class because it was required of me. I, was, I think I was in about, uh, I think I was a junior, sophomore or junior. Did not know God. I'd had an encounter with God when I was 15, but I did not know God. 
All I knew that his name was Jesus because the encounter said, my name is Jesus Christ. My philosophy teacher was a, he was a, he was a evangelist for atheism. And he was telling us there, there is no God and here's, and here's Freud and we're learning all this stuff about philosophy and, and, and about psychology. And I'm sitting there and I'm like the goof off in the class. Like I, I barely passed high school. I couldn't read in high school. So something happened and I stood up in class and I began to give an intellectual exhortation on why there was a God who created the earth. It went on for five minutes. The students looked at me. The professor went totally silent. The students looked at me, stood and clapped. I walked out of that class and I'm like, I have no idea how that happened. And the Lord literally took over my body and he spoke with my voice to the professor. It happened one other time in my English class when the English teacher was talking about why there was no God. And I stood up and I gave her an exhortation. And I mean, it was like a science exhortation. I had no idea what I was saying. And I believe that you are gonna have that experience. That you're gonna turn a generation from atheism to creationists, that you're gonna turn a generation, that God's gonna give you a brilliant mind, he's gonna give you a spirit of revelation, you're gonna know things you shouldn't know, you're gonna know things that no one ever taught you, no one ever told you, that the Holy Spirit himself is gonna be your teacher, your guide, your anointed one, you're gonna, he's gonna be your best friend, he's gonna to go to school with you, he's gonna tell you in class, stand up now, and he's gonna give you the power and the grace, and he's like, when you, and you're like, I don't know what to say, and he's gonna tell you, when you stand, you'll have something to say. And I believe that he's given you courage, but he's also given you grace and mercy. And, and people are going to go, that's amazing. They're not going to go, I reject you. They're going to go, can I follow you? And I bless you in Jesus' name. That's a good word. Amen. Why don't you all stand? Let me just pray for you. Leslie's going to stay tonight because there's prophetic ministry on her and She's a mother, and she said, I wouldn't want anyone to leave without a prophetic word, so I will stay. Oh, she said she has one. Jesus loves you. But I'm just going to pray for you right now. I feel so strong tonight that there's like a Holy Spirit, something happening. You know, when Moses, uh, he was encountering God in the tent of meeting. You remember the story? And um, in Exodus 32... But in Exodus 33, Moses asked this question of God, will you go with us? Because before that, well, the connotation is, God, I love being in the tent, but I actually need you out of the tent. <laughs> I love meeting you in the tent, but what's happening in the tent, I actually kind of need you, I need that to happen out of the tent. Will you go with us? So when Moses is talking to God about going with him, he's not talking about like, gosh, I hope you're with us. He's like, hey, I go in the tent and crazy things happen where I feel connected, you talk to me. But the challenge is, is I leave the tent and I actually need you when I'm not in the tent more than I need you when I'm in the tent. So will you go with us? Can I have, those kind of, can I have this kind of relationship with you that when I'm not in the tent, I am confident that you're with me? And I just want to pray this right now. Exodus 33 over you, that God would go with you. I don't mean like, oh, God's with me. I don't mean that. I mean that what's happening tonight to you, 
or in your special zone that when you leave here, it would increase. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school, whatever you're doing tomorrow, you'll be like, man, that's something crazy. I feel so anointed. It's like, I just release the tent of meeting when there's no tent for you in Jesus' name. Why don't you say, I receive that. God bless you. Happy Easter. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.